I'm Parker Moss, Chief Commercial Officer at Genomics Syndrome, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to share the benefits of genomic medicine with everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. So today I'm really excited to have this discussion. We've brought a real medicine maker onto the line to explain in lay terms why individual patient data is so important for the drug discovery process. Nadine Sawa, welcome to the G Word. Thank you so much, Parker. Brilliant to be here. Thanks, Nadine. So we've had so many good conversations over the years. Um, and what I've really enjoyed um, is that your scientific experience stems from the intersection of genomics, data science, and digital. But you use all of this experience not just as not as a doctor, not as a clinical trialist, but really to focus on driving therapeutic innovation or drug discovery. So in that capacity, you were recently appointed to a dual role uh, as the global head of genomic strategies and also digital strategies at ASI, which is an important Japanese pharma company. Uh, and you previously served as the founder and the president of a hundred scientists strong drug discovery biotech called G2D2 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, famous biotech hub. Uh, you've got experience in academia as well, uh, where you enjoy tenure at the University of Cambridge and you're an honorary professor with focus uh, on genomics and digital health at the School of Medicine in Edinburgh. But you've also worked in pharma, you've worked at Pfizer and today at ASI, and you've worked at, in, in biotech at GDT2. You've successfully built and led organizations across the U UK, US, and Japan, so you're truly an international operator. And you've been a contributor to the discovery and delivery of therapeutics into clinical trials for cardiometabolic disease, immunology, oncology, most recently COVID and also in dementia. So that's a really, really wide range of therapeutic areas. Um, and while you're not working uh, directly in drug discovery, you're advising the World Dementia Envoy, you work a lot with UK Trade Investment, you work with the World Economic Forum and also the, the US National Academies of Science. So you're a very busy guy. And I have to thank you also for being a great friend and supporter of Genomics England um, over many years. So it's fantastic to have you here. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. I mean, I have to say, during the pandemic, you must realize the privileges you have and getting to hang out with a mate over a coffee talking about genomics, definitely some of those privileges. So I really appreciate you having me. That's great. I've enjoyed it as well. Uh, so why don't we go back to the beginning and have you tell us a little bit about yourself, Nadine. Where are you from and why did you decide to become a medicine maker? Sure. And that will also help clarify my kind of weird accent that I'll flip in and out of. Um, so I'm originally from Scotland, um, but just before that, my parents um, got to Scotland from Pakistan. Um, my dad came when he was 16, youngest um, son from a family of five, the only boy, a farmer. And my mom um, grew up in a village in Pakistan that had no school for girls. Um, so both of them never got the privilege of an education. Um, so when I was born, after my two brothers, it was important to me that I benefited from that privilege. Also, because my mom never got to go to school, but she couldn't read or write or speak English. And uh, so from the age of seven, I became her de facto translator. And she's been sick ever since I've known her. She had autoimmune diseases, diabetes, and a bunch of other things that were related. Uh, and my kind of aha moment of what I want to do with myself, uh, I vividly remember came at the age of seven. And uh, my mom used to take me with her to the doctor whenever she went to serve as her translator. And the doctor was trying to describe to her what's up with her and what they're going to do. And he said to her that, well, we have this medicine, 
we're going to try it. If it doesn't work, we'll try the next medicine and so on and so on. And I explained this to my mom and she asked me to ask the doctor, well, why doesn't he just give me the medicine that's going to work for me in the first place? I thought it was a fair question uh, to my seven-year-old mind. So I asked the doctor and he said, I don't know which medicine will work for your mom. Uh, and I didn't understand. I thought that's what doctors do. They give medicines to people that work for them. Today, we call that precision medicine. But I think for me, that was my kind of motivation to get into medicine making. So from there, the science I chose to study uh, was epidemiology before it became cool, by the way. Uh, thanks to the, the pandemic, I think everyone now tries a bit of epidemiology. But I trained in epidemiology with John Dinesh at the University of Cambridge as an MRC scholar. And then I had a lab and a group at the University of Cambridge focusing on you know, large-scale studies of anything you can measure in large numbers of people. These days we call that big data. We just used to call it data back then. And my interests were um, anything you can measure in large numbers of people, genomics, proteomics. And we did some interesting work involving studies with up to 2 million people in them. I then got interested in how can you use those data to uh, predict and also understand the cause of disease. And if you can understand the cause of disease, can that lead you to making medicines? I had many collaborations when I was in academia with other pharma companies, which intrigued me. Why are these pharma companies interested in what I do? Uh, so, oh gosh, 12, 13 years ago, I swapped Cambridge UK for Cambridge US, uh, joining Pfizer initially, and entered the world of drug discovery, and was mesmerized by suddenly all the people that I was around. So when I was in the University of Cambridge, I was surrounded by world-class epidemiologists. And now I was surrounded by medicinal chemists and assay developers and safety people and regulatory people and people I'd never heard of before. So it really was a really exciting launch and transformation. From Pfizer, which was a great place to land and learn in industry, um, I joined Azi, which is a medium-sized global pharma company, 10, 11,000 colleagues worldwide, and became interested in kind of building new organizations, which ultimately led to us creating this drug discovery biotech called uh, G2D2, which stands for Genetics Guided Dementia Discovery. So we were a 100 scientist drug discovery organization and based on the Cambridge, Massachusetts Biotech Hub, which really is a, a world leading hub for drug discovery. And from there, we made some medicines uh, that we can talk about more uh, later. And my current role, which I've chosen to come back to the UK for, is focusing on genomic strategies and digital technologies. And that's a strong recognition that the future of medicine making will be anchored uh, by these two technologies. Uh, so that's what I'm up to, but the undertone of what I try and do is make sure doctors have medicines that they can give to the right patients. Well, Nadim, thank you so much for sharing that personal story. Um, I think it's it's so inspiring that that early formative moment um, in your mother's life on the other side of the world in Pakistan has led you to kind of follow the path towards personalized medicine. And what I'd love to do in this discussion today is kind of follow the line of how patient data in general drives us towards personalized medicine. And the reason I think that's an important question is because our participants at Genomics England regularly ask us, you know, why is it that pharma companies need our data to begin with? We're asking a lot of our participants. So not only are we asking them to share with us their, their DNA, so the blueprint of their, their very being, but we're also asking them to share all of their retrospective and then prospective clinical data for the rest of their lives. And we take that responsibility very, very seriously. We secure it. We maintain it in a, a Fort Knox research environment that sits behind Amazon Web Services today. So it's very, very secure. And we curate access to that data um, through an access review committee. So we absolutely look after that. 
Um, that's part of our responsibility. But the other part of our responsibility is to make sure that we maximize the utilization of that data for drug discovery. And I think it's something that not just participants, but even many people in the clinical world just don't quite follow that link between the data and a new drug. So maybe you could just help us understand that. Sure. Well, I think in a nutshell, the way I'd summarize it is the modern era of medicine making, and I would anticipate the next generation of medicine makers. The key driver of scientific and therapeutic innovation will be the ability to understand human biology by leveraging access to people's health data and their biological data and their biological samples. So the way we make medicines now and the way we will make medicines in the future is dependent upon our ability to really understand the cause of disease in people and how we can then fix that. And that seems like an obvious statement to make, but historically, that's not how medicines have been made. And so the last generation of medicine makers before me um, didn't have the privilege of being able to study human biology and have access to the kind of human data we have today at the scale, the speed, and the depth that I get to access. So historically, the ideas for new medicines came from mice. And we would study mice, and we would try and see what causes disease in mice, and then we'd try and see what fixes disease in mice. And then we would see if those ideas developed in mice would translate to humans. And lo and behold, frequently, in fact, the vast majority of time, they didn't. Uh, that's one of the reasons why many medicine ideas don't actually turn into medicines, because the underpinning source of the idea isn't um, anchored in robust human biology. Today, we can pick the right ideas because we can study people's data and people's samples at the scale, speed, and depth required. Uh, so I'd say the ability to access biological samples and data from large numbers of people will be the foremost driver of innovation for new medicines in the future. So thank you. You've, you've mentioned the term picking the right ideas, um, and I think really that's a metaphor for picking the right targets. And, and we're going to go on and talk a little bit about drug targets. But <clears throat> perhaps we could get a layer down into into the data that we hold. So um, to explain to people out there, we, we hold the whole genome for over 150,000 patients today. So in the, in the whole genome, there are 3.2 billion base pairs or about 6.4 billion bases. And we know that 99.9% um, .9 of those bases are similar between participants, but that still leaves a lot of variation. So there are still millions of variants that are differences between patients. Why is it important to have such a large number? Why, is it, why was it important for the UK government to invest hundreds of millions in sequencing these 150,000 patients and growing so that we can understand which of those variants are pathogenic and then how does that translate into uh, a potential uh, druggable target? So the insights we get from human genetics truly are kind of gifts from nature to make medicines. Uh, and the way I'd characterize it is, uh, like you said, interestingly, over 99% of the DNA, way over 99% of the DNA between two people uh, is the same. Uh, the variation resides in that tiny difference. So, so it's interesting, as is human nature, we tend to focus on our differences rather than our similarities. But we are inherently very similar to each other. If we weren't, I'd have a wing instead of an arm and things like that. So that tiny difference in our DNA drives the vast majority of our differences, the color of our skin, the kind of hair we have, height, and 
our predisposition to health and disease. So we can get clues as to why different people have different causes of disease and different predispositions to disease and different drivers of disease uh, or health, uh, interestingly. And from those clues, we can say, well, if at a genetic level, uh, we can understand what is it within people that causes them to be healthier or more sick than other people, well, can we mimic that using a drug? So essentially, can we replicate whatever biology is protecting some people from disease, or can we um, hit whatever biology is causing disease in people with the same clue that the human genetics is giving us, but by using a drug instead of um, your body's own natural way of, of doing that? Now, those variations are either rare uh, or they're small, and therefore, to find them, you need to study very large numbers of people. Uh, so one analogy I like to, to use I'm an Avengers fan. And um, you get genetic superheroes, people amongst us uh, that have inherited from their parents remarkable mutations. They can be remarkably bad, uh, like Thanos, or they can be remarkably good, like Captain America. And if you can find these people, now Thanos and Captain America are pretty rare people. If you can find these people, you get unusually informative insights as to what causes disease, like Thanos, or what protects from disease, like happened in America. Now, interestingly, in between those two extremes of the very bad mutations that cause disease or the very good mutations that protect from disease, there are more subtle variations of that, slightly bad variations or slightly good variations. If we put all of that together, we can get what I term a genetic dose response. So we can understand if genetically boosting something uh, slightly or massively increases risk of disease, or genetically inhibiting something uh, slightly or massively prevents disease. And use that genetic clue to then say, well, if whatever this gene does can do that to disease, can we do the exact same thing by using a drug instead? Now, to get that level of insight, what we need is very large numbers of data, and because these insights are rare, and then very deep data. Uh, we need to measure lots of things in people to really understand, well, what is it at a biological, molecular level these genes do to give us clues how to, how to mimic them. And underpinning all of that essentially is uh, we need access to very large, very high quality, very deep data to drive medicine making. So I think you've been inferring the, the, the concept of a kind of a natural knockout, and there have been some really classic examples in drug discovery of, of natural knockouts. Maybe you can talk us through and kind of bring this idea alive uh, to our listeners. Uh, what, what have been some of the, the great uh, and kind of fortune-driven discoveries of, um, of these superhero qualities. So it's blasphemous to talk about genetics and drug discovery and not talk about PCSK9. So that really is our poster child. And I think it really helped open the eyes of the world to how genetics can help inform drug discovery. There are many other examples too that have led to medicines for HIV, medicines for diabetes, for Alzheimer's, for many, many other insights. But this particular example was especially compelling. So for decades, we've known poor individuals who inherit boosting or gain-of-function mutations in a gene called PCSK9 have super sky-high levels of bad LDL cholesterol and often have heart attacks in their 30s. It's a really, really rare but devastating um, genetic uh, condition to inherit and causes diseases like familial hypercholesterolemia and basically very high levels of, of cholesterol uh, at a very young age. In 2006, um, a group out of Texas and Helen Hobbs identified the flip. Uh, there was an individual, that's how rare this is, one person, 
um, that was the complete opposite. Um, she inherited, instead of a boosting mutation, a knockout mutation. Uh, she did not make any PCSK9. And what were the consequences of her not having any PCSK9? Well, instead of having sky high levels of bad cholesterol, she had extremely kind of unbelievably low levels of bad cholesterol. Uh, similarly, in every other way, she seemed to be perfectly healthy. She never had a heart attack, didn't have any other kind of strange diseases. So in this case, this rare mutation that knocked out PCSK9 prevented disease and caused her to have super low levels of bad cholesterol. So you put that together and you think, well, genetics is giving us a clue here. If you boost the same thing, you get very high levels of bad cholesterol and high risk of heart disease. If you knock it out, you get very low levels of bad cholesterol and low risk of heart disease. Can we do the same thing, but with a drug? And fast forward 15, 20 years, uh, we can. Uh, there are now multiple ways of doing that using drugs. There are antibodies, there are siRNA therapeutics, there may even be small molecules, there may even be vaccines, there may even be gene therapies, all of which try and do the same thing and mimic the biology that this PCS mutation gave us a clue to and um, to lower cholesterol and prevent heart disease. And already many, many, many patients have benefited um, from this drug. So that's kind of a very nice kind of post-child example of how genetics can be useful to find a drug target in the former drug discovery program. I also like to give the flip example um, of how important it is to not pursue a bad idea, as well as how important it is to pursue a good idea. So in the same way, if genetics can tell you what to pursue, it may also be able to tell you what might not be worthwhile pursuing. And another good example here in the cardiovascular disease space is a drug against uh, an enzyme called LPPLA2. So in the same way for PCSK9, where there were human knockouts, uh, there are human knockouts for this other gene, LPPLA2. And in the same way, if you want to inhibit LPPLA2 to make a drug, you'd hope people that have inherited a mutation that knocks out LPPLA2 should also somehow be at lower risk of heart disease. But they're not. Uh, very curiously, um, people who for their entire life have had unmeasurable levels of LPPLA2 don't have lower risk of heart disease. So that would suggest that if you were to using a drug inhibit LPPLA2, it probably won't make a material difference to the risk of heart disease. And that was confirmed in two clinical trials. Um, so human genetics can really help you find good targets, but perhaps equally as importantly, it may help you stop wasting your time on ideas that aren't going to work. Okay, there are so many things in that um, last few minutes that I'd love to unpack. I suppose my first observation is I just really wish that biologists were uh, as good at naming genes as the Avengers were for naming superheroes, because these, these genes and gene variants are really, really hard to remember. Secondly, before we go on to the difference between kind of associations and drivers of disease, I think you slipped in something really important about the PCSK9 uh, inhibitor example, which is that this incredible lady who I, I believe was from Africa, who was a human knockout for PCSK9, didn't have um, any negative symptoms of that knockout. So that tells you a lot about the safety profile of a knockout. Maybe you could explain a little, that in a little bit more detail, because otherwise people may think that all we have to do is find the driver gene, knock it out using CRISPR, and everything will be fine. But it's, it's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? Right. Um, so this lady who was African-American um, from this group in, in Texas, there were kind of two very intriguing features about her. Uh, one was she had extremely low levels, kind of implausibly low levels of bad cholesterol. And the second thing was, Every other thing you can measure about her was otherwise normal. Um, so it almost seemed this knockout, PCSK9, the only thing it seemed to do was lower her levels of cholesterol. It did not 
increase her glucose or cause her memory issues or um, increase her predisposition to infection. She otherwise seemed perfectly healthy. Um, now, trying to really make concrete ideas from one person is a high risk, uh, but conveniently there are other, not knockout, but more subtle um, variations in PCSK9 and other genes that alter LDL cholesterol levels too. And interestingly, if you look at those, you get the same idea that people that, genet that inherit subtle inhibitors of PCSK9 or bad cholesterol controlling genes have lower levels of LDL cholesterol um, in almost in a dose-dependent linear way, but otherwise seem pretty healthy, uh, which is important. Interestingly, when statins, which are now regularly used lower LDL cholesterol, first burst on the scene decades ago, there was a concern whether lowering people's bad cholesterol levels to low levels may increase risk of other things like dementia or neurological conditions um, because there's a lot of cholesterol in the brain. And it turns out that's not the case. So genetics can give you some really important clues to the whole body effects of inhibiting uh, a particular protein or an enzyme, not just the organ that you're interested in. There are some great examples where human genetics have also alerted us to potential side effects of medicines early on. Uh, so for example, there's a class of drugs called uh, DGAT1, where there's been a lot of interest in modulating DGAT1 for diabetes, and um, with some moderate success in terms of altering people's glucose levels. Uh, however, um, these medicines that have tried to modulate DGAT1 have also had severe side effects that are abdominal, gastrointestinal, causing severe diarrhea and things like that. It turns out there are people that have mutations in the DGAT1 gene that basically does what this drug aspires to do. And one presenting trait of having DGAT1 loss of function is you have severe diarrhea and you have abdominal um, issues. Um, so again, human genetics provides remarkable clues as to what good might come from modulating a specific target, uh, what harm might come from modulating that target in a whole body way, and also how to do it at a molecular level. Um, so simply inhibiting PCSK9 is a, is a good idea, but how does one go about inhibiting PCSK9 using a drug as opposed to a, a gene? Um, so really, it, it provides you end-to-end -end insight when you're a medicine maker. It's fascinating. We'll come on to the how in a minute. Um, I think what makes PCSK9 so interesting is that you know the, the, the usually very efficient um, evolutionary process uh, only conserves genes over many generations that have a useful function. Uh, so it's not surprising, I suppose, that if we entirely knock out those genes, that there will be some deleterious effect. And this is why sometimes we may need to just downregulate or, or conversely upregulate a gene rather than remove it entirely. And I suppose that's a very important part of the tox profile of, of a drug and, and the drug development process. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, ideally you want quantitative insights. So you not only want to know, should I inhibit or boost this target? You want to know, well, how much do I need to inhibit or boost it to get a therapeutic effect? And what is my limit to do that in a safe way? And again, there are ways of developing these genetic dose response curves. If you can find enough people with enough variety of mutations in your target of interest, ideally, you want to be able to plot the full spectrum. What happens if I boost it 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%? What happens if I inhibit it 10%, 20%, etc.? And what does that linear relationship look like? And you can use that then to guide you. Well, when I make a drug, if I inhibit it 50%, that might not be enough to get my effect. I really need to inhibit it 75%. Uh, but if I totally knock it out, that's bad because this side effect may occur. So it can really help you find that Goldilocks sweet spot uh, of how much you need to modulate a drug a target by using your drug. 
um, and what side effects I want to look out for. Okay, thank you. So in your FLIP example, and I'm not going to try to mangle the name of that gene, maybe you could repeat it again, but in your FLIP example, um, what was discovered was clearly an association, but that was not driving the disease, that when we did knock it out, and I believe there were some very expensive um, phase two and phase three trials trying to knock it out, uh, it failed to to improve the phenotype and, and help the patient. Um, so, so maybe you could explain a little bit about the difference between passenger and driver mutations, which is especially relevant in, in cancer, where there are many passenger mutations. Yeah, and maybe the way I will phrase it is, um, it's essential in drug discovery to be able to distinguish between factors that are causal in a disease from factors that are correlated with a disease. Uh, so one example I'll give uh, that is quite topical right now, it might be quite familiar to people, is the difference between good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. So it's often been said that having less bad cholesterol is good for you, but also having more good cholesterol, so-called HDL cholesterol, is also good for you. Uh, so from a therapeutic perspective, strategies to either lower bad cholesterol would be useful or increase good cholesterol would be useful. But curiously, whilst many drugs that lower bad cholesterol have proven to be effective at preventing heart disease, many drugs that boost good cholesterol have not. And it's always been a curiosity, well, why is that? If having higher levels of good cholesterol is indeed associated with lower risk of heart disease, why don't drugs that boost good cholesterol prevent heart disease? Um, and genetics, again, has played an important role in helping unravel that. So if you look closely at the human genetics, you can triangulate between the gene and the biomarker of interest, in this case, LDL cholesterol or HDL cholesterol, and the disease of interest, in this case, heart disease. And you can see whether genetic modulation of your biomarker is related to your risk of disease or not. So for example, genetic inhibition of LDL cholesterol almost always lowers risk of heart disease. It almost doesn't matter which gene you do it by. And um, in a linear way, if genetic inhibition of LDL cholesterol protects people from heart disease, by contrast, genetic boosting of HDL cholesterol does not protect from heart disease. And again, it's almost kind of across multiple ways of doing that um, in combined analyses of, of many genes where you would expect sizable differences in levels of good cholesterol, despite there being people who have genetically substantially increased or substantially lowered levels of good cholesterol, um, their risk of heart disease remains the same. So if you're a medicine maker and you have those, these two pieces of data and you want to pick, you know, do I spend the next 10 years of my life on $2 billion developing drugs to inhibit bad cholesterol or boost good cholesterol, what do I do? You're getting a very clear signal from human genetics. Now, it's not a guarantee, few things medicine making are, uh, but it's a pretty strong indication if you had to pick, and we often do, I'd pick the path that is genetically validated. Okay, so I really want to relate that back to the data that we hold at Genomics England. So I'm just going to play some of that back to you, and then we can talk about how this uh, genetic validation works. So take, for example, um, our colorectal cancer data set um, in Genomics England. We have one of the largest whole genome sequencing colorectal data sets in the world, about 4,000 patients. So if you imagine this in a table, um, there might be 4,000 columns, one column for each patient. And in the rows, um, there are about 3.2 billion rows, one row for eat the variant, and actually there are more than that as well um, for things like fusions and, and non-single nucleotide variants. So this is a very, very big table. 
So from that table, um, we know that each each of the patients will have several million variants that make them differ. That's that's the kind of 0.1% of their whole genome that differ from each other. Uh, but by lining uh, patients up um, with the same cancer, in this case, colorectal cancer, we can kind of eliminate the, the variants that are not common between those patients so that we can just get down to uh, the much smaller number of variants, maybe a few thousand, uh, that are that are potentially pathogenic, that are potentially the driver of those diseases. But caught up in those few thousand that, that, that drop out of that uh, elimination process um, will be many, uh, many variants that are just solely associated or correlated to disease and not necessarily driving disease. So presumably, if you spent uh, those billions of pounds you mentioned developing a, a drug for a variant that was just a correlation that would be an enormous waste of money and and the, the patient's time on those clinical trials. Um, so I think what you're saying, Adim, is that it's very important that we go beyond uh, correlations and we actually understand causal drivers of disease. Have I explained that correctly? Uh, you nailed it. Uh, you should come do my job sometime in the future. I think you'd be awesome at it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, in medicine making, we have limited resources and we have to pick which ideas to pursue. And on average, and we'll come back to why on average is an important phrase, but on average, that takes a long time and costs a lot of money. So we have to be extremely careful which ideas we pursue. Otherwise, we'll spend 10 years, a lifetime's work, and a few billion dollars and not have any medicines at the end of it. And that's quite devastating if you think about it. You're spending your entire life's energy and a lot of science and a lot of money and recruiting patients, doing all this work and not ending up with a medicine that helps people. Um, that's a lot of wasted time, money, effort, and, and, and people samples, and, and also lost hope, which is, which is important. So we have to be extremely strategic what ideas we pursue. And the kind of data you describe is essential in informing that. Uh, first of all, in terms of, well, what idea to pursue? Should I lower um, bad cholesterol or should I boost good cholesterol? And then, well, how to do that? How exactly am I going to make a medicine that does that? Uh, and the uniqueness of the data you have um, and other resources in the UK and elsewhere have um, is the ability to not only inform um, target selection, but go beyond that and inform, well, how are you actually going to make a medicine that does that? Okay, that's really clear to me. So really, all of the work um, that the UK government has invested in and all of our collaboration with the NHS to um, to recruit and sequence all of these patients into our database really helps us go from disease to gene and then from gene to a, a highly correlated or a strong uh, genetic association with a, with a disease phenotype. Maybe you could now tell us what are the options to take that strong association and validate it, which is something that, which is done outside the realm of computing and, and in a wet lab. Talk, us, talk, talk our, our listeners through um, some of the options in target validation. Yeah, so this uh, phrase, uh, validated therapeutic target, is a loaded one. And you know, validation is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, some people say, well, a validated target is a target I know works in people using a drug. But that's a pretty high bar example. But a lot of people are now using a validated target to mean there's compelling human biology data and to give me a strong sense of belief that if I make a medicine that does this, it's likely to work. I'm kind of de-risking my drug discovery program, if you like. Um, and the clue, again, comes from the data from your patients. There are people's data that we can analyze uh, on a computer, 
and that tells us you should inhibit this or you should agonize that. Now, the next level is to understand, well, how should I do that? In what cell type? Uh, what is the assay I would measure? And um, to know if I'm doing something useful, um, how much do I need to do it by? What are the whole body consequences? Um, what is the right modality I would need to use? So, you know, is this amenable to a small molecule or an antibody or an ASO or a gene therapy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of wet lab biology um, and then ultimately chemistry uh, needs to happen after you have a, um, a, a kind of a seed idea. And that's a lot of work and it's a lot of multidisciplinary work. Uh, so whereas you know, getting to the genetic association that gives you that clue is hard enough, what follows is some really spectacular sci-fi science that takes that clue and turns it into, well, here's the real concept. We need a drug that at this molecular level hits this mechanism in this cell type by this much. Here's the assay we would use to measure that. And now we're going to try and find a compound that does that. So getting from genetic association to genetically validated therapeutic hypothesis is a lot of work um, and some brilliant scientists out there spending their life's energy doing that. Yes, this is an area where I feel that we are really standing on the shoulders of giants. So once you've found your, your target, which could, for example, be PCSK9, uh, there are databases that we link to and we annotate with, which will tell you based on the work of generations of scientists before us, whether that target is on the, on the surface of the cell, which may make it amenable to an antibody approach, or deep intracellular within the cell, which might mean that a, a small molecule, which can penetrate cell surface and, and inhibit that target within the cell is the appropriate modality. And then there are a whole range of others that work um, uh, to, to inhibit drugs in, in different parts of the, the cell compartment. So we have that, um, the, the, those annotations that we bring into our database to help uh, give a clue about um, how you might address that target. But may, maybe you could explain the concept of how target validation has recently moved beyond mouse models to human tissue models, because that's something that Genomics England also contributes to, because we're super grateful to our participants who have not only agreed to allow us to follow their data, but also on occasion to go back to them and to resample them and perhaps take more blood that can be used to create these human tissue models for validation. So perhaps you could talk us through that wet lab validation process where you kind of simulate a, a, a human knockout but in, a, in a human tissue organ. Yeah, and it comes back to, again, how remarkably helpful the data and samples that people like you are collecting and all your participants have provided are. Uh, really, it anchors medicine making now. Uh, so as I mentioned in the past, uh, historically, the generation of medicine makers before me didn't have access to that. Uh, so what they had to do was get those insights from other systems or other models as they're known. And essentially that meant trying to develop some of these concepts and tissues or samples or things you can get in mice or other species or cells or worms or so on. What we can now do quite remarkably is if you can find people with these unusually informative genetic mutations, they either have inherited bad mutations or good mutations, and you can find those people and those people allow it, you can then take samples from them, um, blood, skin samples, biopsies, uh, uh, you can do scans. There, there, there are ways of, of getting a lot of material from these people now. And what you can then do is develop these therapeutic concepts from tissues and cells from people as opposed to from mice, and not just any people, these unusually informative people. 
There's one concept, for example, called iPSCs, which is based on stem cell technologies. Uh, in a nutshell, what you can do is take one type of cell from someone, from their blood or their skin, and turn it into your cell type of interest, a brain or a heart or a kidney. It's a kind of sci-fi stuff, and I can turn your skin into a brain. Uh, but you can uh, at a molecular cellular level and get remarkable clues then. So you can say, well, this person that inherited this mutation that either causes or prevents disease, at a cellular level in their brain cells or their heart cells or their kidney cells, and what is happening and how can that inform my medicine? And next step, when I have a medicine, if I put it in that cell system that I've made from these people's cells, what happens? Does it fix the problem? Uh, that is a remarkably useful insight to be able to get. And again, it massively boosts your confidence that the idea is worth pursuing. Uh, so I wouldn't under, understate the, the value of the data and the samples that your participants are providing people for medicine making. So you mentioned iPSCs. These are induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, which was a, a Nobel Prize winning award again from Japan uh, a decade or two ago. So that's an incredible uh, type of uh, human tissue model. There are also organoids that are being um, grown, particularly in cancer, where you can grow a kind of 3D matrix of uh, of a cancer cell in, in a kind of realistic microenvironment. And some people are e even saying that we may be able to have immune competent organoids soon, where we also put autologously the immune cells from patients. But still, humble cell lines themselves, just 2D models in, in petri dishes, are, are still effective in, in drug validation as well. And perhaps you can you could talk briefly about some of the new techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 for, for modulating uh, variants and then testing phenotype. Yeah, so as we are, ability to access samples from genetically informed individuals has increased. That's led to a whole new realm of innovation around well, what can we do with that knowledge. So in the past, because we weren't able to access these samples, it was kind of difficult to imagine, well, what would you do if you could? Now we can. It's opened up a whole new realm of innovation. So like you're mentioning, if we can get really informative um, sample cells from these unusually informative people, we can now do a lot of things with them. Uh, one massive breakthrough recently has been in the realm of um, gene editing and related technologies, and also at a, kind of going beyond the DNA at an RNA level and being able to understand not only what happens with these mutations, but what happens in the way um, things are expressed uh, subsequent to inheriting these mutations. And then going one step further at a proteomic level, what happens when that expression tries to make proteins and have what's different about them. So, I mean, I guess the way I'd summarize it is uh, we really have a very broad molecular biopharmacological toolbox now available to us. Uh, so human genetic, human genetic insights can first help us identify interesting therapeutic targets. Second, help us prioritize uh, amongst targets we want to spend our effort and dollars on. And then third, give us model systems that are anchored by iPSCs, gene editing, um, 3D models, the ability to do dense imaging. And a, a final category I'd add is at a computational level. Um, so we've become remarkably good at generating all this data, but that's now a lot of data. And therefore, you have to have some really smart people who can organize and harmonize and integrate and analyze that data, as well as ways of kind of storing it. So it really takes us into the big data space. And uh, the amount of data we generate is massive. And therefore, 
data analytics and data sophistication becomes a critical part of what we do. Um, so again, the past generation of medicine makers were dependent upon kind of biological and chemical sciences as a key drivers of their innovation. Uh, today, I would triangulate that. You know, chemical, biological, and data sciences really are the drivers of what we do. Which is exactly why you have both uh, a data and drug discovery in your job title today. And it's really encouraging to me to see those worlds coming together organizationally, but also um, you know, within the disciplines of single, admittedly very smart individuals like you. So I think what is incredible is that we've had this entire discussion so far about the odyssey of going from um, a, a group of patients with a disease to identifying a gene or a gene variant, uh, then to kind of isolating genotype, phenotype associations, then to maybe um, getting a kind of strong sense of validation of that uh, of that target in a wet lab. We haven't actually even talked yet at all about then what you do, how you drug that that gene. Um, but I think it, it must be becoming clear, particularly to patients and our participants that are listening to this, that the process of finding high confidence targets is very dependent, not only on the data um, from participants upfront, but potentially also for these participants submitting more samples for target validation. Is there anything you can tell us about uh, new modalities of drugs that are able to uh, modulate or knock out or downregulate or upregulate those those targets that you've gone to all that effort to to discover that might encourage our patient population and our, our listeners that um, we're able to kind of speed up this this process of drug discovery and bring more hope sooner to uh, patients afflicted by some of the, the terrible rare diseases and and uh, cancers that, that we're focused on in genomics England. Maybe two things I'd say there. One is. Uh, not to underestimate the effort it takes to go from a genetically validated target to a medicine. But second is to say, again, the scientific toolbox we have available today really was truly sci-fi even five years ago. So the things that we can do today are remarkable. And as a result, the types of medicines and the speed of making those medicines was truly unimaginable um, until only a short time ago. So first of all, unpacking that first piece, well, what happens next? A long-term mentor of mine, David Altshuler, who's now the chief scientific officer at Vertex, a different pharmaceutical company, describes it the kind of the yada, yada, yada process. Uh, so when I was in, in academia, um, focusing on finding interesting genes, and I, you know, once I found an interesting genetic association, I thought, wow, that's a remarkable insight to give someone. They're not going to make a drug. Uh, what happens next? I didn't really know how you go from a genetic association to a drug. I just assumed, you know, yada, 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 some stuff happens, out comes medicine. It turns out a lot of stuff happens with a lot of different people. And that was the first kind of aha thing that hit me when I transitioned from Cambridge UK to Cambridge US and to the pharmaceutical sector. All of a sudden, I was surrounded by people doing in vitro models, cell types, assays, screening, hit confirmation, potency, working in crystals, knowledge-based drug design, structure-based drug design medicinal chemistry in vivo models, PKPD modeling, DMPK. And like, wait a minute, who are all these people and what are they all doing? And that just represents all the things that need to happen next before you get to a new compound that can be a, a medicine. So I would kind of premise what I'm about to say with, there's a lot of really talented scientists, really specialist scientists in the pharmaceutical sector and across sectors that do some amazing science that allows us to make medicines. 
putting that in context, it's rare to meet someone who's actually made a medicine. It sounds like an unusual thing to, to say. Um, but for example, if you meet someone from the pharmaceutical sector who's actually made a medicine, that's a pretty remarkable thing for them to have been involved in. Because if in the scheme of things, there aren't that many drugs out there. There are a lot of people trying to make drugs. So you may well go through your entire career never making a medicine. Now, that's how difficult it is. Now, looking forward, our chances of success have astronomically transformed. And I think two things really illustrate that. Uh, one is what happened during the pandemic. Uh, we went from discovery of a new disease uh, to being able to potentially eradicate that disease, not just treat it or manage it, potentially eradicate it in a matter of a couple of years. Uh, that was unimaginable and before we did it. So that set a whole new bar of how you can make medicines at the speed and scale at which you can make medicines. This is not just a medicine for a few people with a, few, with, with a, with a certain disease. This is potentially a medicine that we hope will be given to everyone in the world. The second thing is the modalities that are available to us. And what I mean by a modality is uh, whether it's a tablet or a capsule or an injection or kind of things like that. So now the modalities available to us weren't invented <laughs> until quite recently. And there are modalities that can modulate DNA, modulate RNA, modulate proteins, uh, do it in a specific cell, do it in a specific organ, and be injected through different ways to get to your brain or to get to your kidneys. They can have one-and-done effects. There are medicines being developed now that you would take once, it would fix the mutation that's causing your disease, and that's it. You don't need a medicine again. It's a lifelong fixing of a disease. There are medicines being developed uh, that you, instead of having to take daily, uh, can take every six monthly, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the way in which we can make medicines and the scale at which we can make medicines has truly transformed. And that opens up a whole new realm of possibility for medicine making. So I'm truly energized and excited about what the next decade will hold. I think we'll see some currently unimaginable medicines coming up. Yeah, I think you've really got this sense of excitement across. I agree that what happened in COVID is remarkable. Um, and the idea of, uh, of using uh, microRNA to kind of stimulate the precursor of a COVID spike, which your immune system could then become sensitive to, is amazing. I, I think sometimes we, we've talked about this all happening within 18 months, but it's important for listeners to recognize that that was based on about 20 years of science that was um, in large part funded by DARPA in America to, to get us there. So um, even though we saw rapid progress, uh, again, if people wonder why we can't make medicines uh, in, in a small number of years um, and develop new modalities in very short periods, that we're still talking about decade-long processes. But there have been some green shoots of extraordinarily rapid drug discoveries and drug developments. Uh, and I, I know it's an area that you're focused on, uh, which is uh, the exotic area of antisense oligonucleotides. And, and perhaps you could just briefly relate the excitement of, of what happened with Millicent in the last decade. Yeah, I think it's a remarkable story. And again, a case study that opens the eyes to what's possible. So uh, a remarkable a doctor uh, at the Children's Hospital in Boston, uh, Tim Yu, uh, met a patient. Uh, and this poor little girl had this devastating rare disease and uh, that caused onset of blindness and seizures and development regression. And it was something that she'd been suffering from from the age of three. And eventually, you know, he, he met her. The punchline is he went from diagnosing her to dosing her uh, with a medicine made specifically for her, essentially in a year. 
Uh, so that's the idea would be you go into your doctor's office, you meet the doctor, the doctor says, hello, um, Mr. Smith, how are you? What's up? And after diagnosing you, a year later has made and dosed you with medicine specifically for you. The way that was possible is because of this novel modality that was used, antisense oligonucleotide. So first of all, Tim Yu and his group um, figured out that this poor girl's disease, which is a form of Batten's disease, a very rare disease, um, is caused by a mutation in a gene called uh, CLN7. And in particular, he, they realized through whole genome sequencing, the kind of work you guys are doing, um, that the cause of her disease was there's essentially something in that gene that shouldn't have been there, an insertion that was causing um, the production of the, the, the protein that's ultimately formed not to be formed. Uh, so there was some, some, some bad stuff that snuck in there somehow that was causing or preventing um, the, the protein that needs to be formed from being formed. So using this novel, relatively novel modality um, called antisense oligonucleotides, they figured out, well, they can simply skip um, the part of the DNA that has this bad patch in it uh, using a technique called exon skipping. And they leveraged uh, a splice site to do that and really some super cool science. But essentially, they figured out the cause of this disease in that patient. Uh, they figured out how to fix it for that patient. And then they made it, uh, which is the other remarkable thing. So usually making medicines, um, just the synthesis and the, the design takes years. Uh, they did all that, and they spoke to the regulators, um, and they got approval uh, to dose her all in a year. That opens up two whole new realms of possibility. And this is kind of pre-pandemic, right? So one is speed. You can make medicines really quickly if you know exactly what to do. And then second, precision. So in this situation, this drug was made and designed specifically the genetic sequence of this person. If you could scale that, and I guess that's the, the question, how can you scale it? But if you could, could that lead to a whole new era of medicine? The idea that doctors and other scientists can figure out what is the cause of the disease in you and make a medicine designed specifically to fix it for you. So putting those two things together, on one hand, um, these novel modalities open up a whole new realm of globe-wide medicines, you know, medicines to eradicate a disease from the, from the, the globe. Uh, and on the other spectrum, um, medicines for you, designed for you based on your genetic sequence. Both of those possibilities are ultimately underpinned by our knowledge of genetics and what they do. Um, so really, the next, the next wave of medicines are going to be transformative. Thank you for explaining that. And I'd like to pause for a moment at that point just to um, pay respect to Mila, the, the beautiful girl that um, inspired and enabled this drug, Millicent. Uh, I think she survived for 10 years after that drug was implemented and has very sadly recently died. Um, and I think if her parents are listening, it's important to acknowledge the inspiration that their daughter had on this whole new avenue and potentially era of, uh, of drug discovery. And if you want to hear more about antisense oligonucleotides, really one of the, the grandfathers of that industry, Stan Crook, was the subject of one of our previous G Words um, a couple of months ago, and it is on the G Word series. So I've just got two more questions for you, Nadim. Um, I think you said right at the very beginning of, uh, of this talk um, that you've come back to the UK, having uh, been a globetrotter around the world um, in drug discovery. Um, tell us how the UK measures up and whether we're an interesting destination or location for doing uh, this incredible drug discovery work here. 
So I am indeed back home, and it's very nice to to be here. And I quite unashamedly chased the data, and that's why I chose to come back home. Uh, so my new role is I'm the global head of genomics and strategies and the global head of digital strategies. So essentially, I could be anywhere. Um, but the UK has probably the world's most sophisticated data and digital ecosystem um, that, if applied, could, again, underpin transformative medicines. That was illustrated again during the pandemic. Uh, so there was some remarkable work done out of the UK, not only to discover um, medicines and vaccines, but also to test them. And in particular, the recovery trial, and that would be an awesome whole new podcast in the future of how you do clinical trials differently. Uh, but this this case showed that the UK is positioned perhaps better than most places um, to do things at a scale uh, that is transformative. So the UK has invested a lot of money, uh, energy, and science in developing world-class uh, genomic and other resources. And genomics England, of course, being one of them, the UK Biobank, Our Future Health, Generation Scotland. There are many, many world-class resources. And also the UK has a legacy of world-class epidemiology, going all the way back to the British doctor study, you know, showing the association between smoking and lung cancer, uh, to the Whitehall studies of civil servants and, and now you know, our future health of 5 million people. So the UK really is a world-class destination for accessing and applying uh, data uh, to drive therapeutic innovation. And I think we're pretty good at the chemistry as well. Is that correct? You know, we, we have all the building blocks to be a true powerhouse of therapeutic innovation. I think we're remarkably blessed with not only extremely well resourced scientific institutes and universities, but also some really smart scientists who are committed to driving innovation to help patients. Um, so kind of that triangle of data, science, and um, access to patients. I think that that really is uh, that what can underpin a whole new kind of life sciences era and economy for the UK. Thank you, Nadim. And it really does make us very proud at Genomics England to be part of Genome, Genome UK, part of this um, group of organizations that you've mentioned, UK Biobank, Our Future Health, which is looking at early detection, also the NIHR Bioresource in Cambridge, which has some very interesting data sets. And collectively, we really hope to, to be the powerhouse that provides that data. Um, really thanks to the contribution from our participants um, that will lead to better and more precision drugs. And I think that this discussion today explain in very clear lay terms um, why it is so important that we continue to have the engagement of, uh, of patients, both with common disease and in the case of genomics, England, rare diseases and cancers to contribute to this discovery world that you've dedicated your career to. And I, I'm, I'm sure you feel now that you've really uh, vindicated that question that you had as a seven-year-old of, um, of why doctors um, don't always give the right medicines, but how we can improve um, on that um, on that factor going forward. Uh, so, Nadim, I've just got one last question for you. I so enjoyed speaking with you today. Um, I would love to hear your recommendation of someone else that I can reach to um, for a future G Word. Who would you like to hear interviewed on the G Word in the future? Well, like I said, it's very, very rare to find people who've actually made medicines. And I think finding a medicine maker would be super cool. And the person I mentioned, uh, Tim Yu, uh, who made Millicin, I think would be a remarkable person. And similarly, some of the people who've made the medicines that have that will eradicate the pandemic and, and again, have used genomic insights would be really interesting. Uh, 
So I'd love uh, for your listeners to in the future hear firsthand from people who've made medicines and the, what their journey was like. That's a great suggestion. I'm going to go out and find one of these uh, three-star general medicine makers that have got multiple medicines to their name. So thank you very much for that uh, suggestion, Nadim. Uh, so I think that's it for this episode. Um, thank you very much for listening to The G Word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and to society. If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind that you'd like us to interview, please do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. We really appreciate your support. And most of all, I'm really grateful to you, Nadine, for giving a part of your day to us. And so until next time, thank you for listening to The G Word.